0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 1. Our purpose in studying Matthew is that we would know Jesus, that we would learn from the things that he says, that we would be like him. And one of the things I love about Matthew is that Matthew was impacted by Jesus. He was changed by the grace that Jesus showed him. And in the book of Matthew, you see Matthew expressing that same grace that he experienced from Jesus, he communicates to others. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 is probably, if you were to go through the Bible and say, what, are, what sermons have people heard the most? Like, think about this. Every year at Christmas, people hear the story of Matthew chapter 1 and 2, right? So think about the people that only go to church on Christmas and Easter, For like 20 years, they've heard the same two sermons, basically. Jesus was born, and Jesus rose from the dead. We're covering this morning a section that people hear more than any other section, and I would say rightly so. The fact that Jesus came to this earth and that he rose from the dead are so significant. And I think the thing that can be challenging about things that we hear over and over is, you know how you just kind of can tune out some of the details? And especially when you think about people who have grown up in church, one of the things that I'm so thankful for is that growing up in church, I learned things like the virgin birth, which we'll talk about this morning. And I never really thought about it. I, I heard it from the time I was so young, I just accepted it and believed it. And I remember as I've been sharing the gospel with people throughout the years. When I'm talking to people, sometimes I put myself in their shoes and I think about what does this sound like to them? And there are times that I've thought, man, I don't know if I could believe this if I hadn't heard it from the time I was a kid. But it just is a reminder of how significant it is that we hear these stories, that we're teaching these stories, that we're genuinely taking them to heart. And so this morning, I want to just remind us of something there are many who, when they look at the New Testament, and they look at miracles, and they look at things like that, they feel like, oh man, this is superstitious. People just made this up. So we're beyond this. And I want to remind you that nothing in Scripture is made up. Look at what Peter says here. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter talks about that. They knew. In 1 John, John says what we we have seen, what we have heard, what our hands have handled, they were eyewitnesses. They knew. They weren't just proclaiming myths. I don't know if you've ever heard people say things like, even if Christianity is not true, it's a better way to live. How many of you have heard that? Have you ever heard somebody say, hey, try out Christianity. You will find out that it is the best way to live. I mean, think about anger and hatred toward people, and and yet in Christianity, we learn to be forgiving. And I mean, even medically, the people that are angry harm themselves. In fact, I've heard about anger and a lack of forgiveness. Um, Having anger and bitterness towards somebody is like drinking poison and then expecting someone else to die. I mean, those things, they, they harm us. And if you think about it, God made life. God teaches everything. He teaches he's wise and he's perfect. And, and if you do things the way God tells you to do them, that is by far the best way to live. But you want to know that the Bible says that if these things aren't true, it's not better to believe them. And so I want to just show you that in relation to the resurrection. But if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Jesus, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. And so what Paul says is these things have to be true. Otherwise, we're all lying. We're saying things that aren't true. So, like, our culture is like, oh, just believe something sincerely. It doesn't actually matter whether or not it's true. Christianity is not like that. What we teach has to be true. It has to be historically accurate. It has to be spiritually accurate because our lives are not based on lies, He goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So if the elements of the gospel are not true, then you don't have forgiveness. What you believe and what you need and what is a necessity in your life has not really happened. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So you're not saved if the facts and details of the gospel are not true. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A lot of people say you're better off believing in Christianity just because, practically speaking, it's better for your life. But the Bible says That's not true. What we say and what we believe, the gospel that's preached must be true. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to see that God sent Jesus to save his people from their sins. The gospels present the real Jesus, who he is in his nature, the truth about the way that he lived his life, what happened when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, All of those things are true, and they are presented, and we need to believe them. So what I want you to know is that if you believe in Jesus, your faith is not in vain. The Old Testament prophesied that a Messiah was coming. It really was Jesus. It could only have been Jesus. And there were a lot of people who came claiming to be the Messiah, and there will be plenty of people coming claiming to be the Messiah, but only Jesus is the Messiah. So if you trust in Jesus, your faith is not in vain. And then we're going to see that while that is true, there are always two responses to Jesus. One is to bow down and worship him. We're going to see that in this passage. And another is to reject him, to hate him. Those are the two options in life. And as we think about the Jesus that is presented, the real Jesus... He's so gracious, he's so loving, he's so inspiring. Why would a person not want to embrace who Jesus is? And that's a question that we'll just leave. Jesus is attractive. He came to seek and save the lost. He is the hero of history. He's the one who is amazing, wise, and loving, and the one who makes everything okay. Not to say that you won't have problems in your life, but if you have Jesus, you can face anything that, that comes. Let's jump into Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is both man and he is God. We're going to see that in this passage. How many of you guys like reading genealogies? When you get to that section in scripture, you're like, awesome, I like this. Actually, I really like genealogies and I kind of see it as a test at the end of my reading. I think the reason that the genealogies are not so exciting for us is because it's just a list of random names that we don't know. Think about the way we interact about families, right? Like when a kid does something great, their parents are proud, right? Why? (laughs) They didn't do it. Their kids did it. But somehow that's a reflection on them. Or if you come from somebody famous, you would want to tell people, oh yeah, no, I'm related to this famous person. Did you know this person was my grandfather or whatever? And it's like we feel this Family connection to the people who come before us and the people who come after us. And I think a lot of times the reason we want to skip genealogies is because we don't know anything about those people. So I like to use it as a test when I'm reading a genealogy to think through what are the things that the Bible has said about all these people? Do I know who they are? Do I know what they did and what happened in their life? And especially when you think about the genealogy of Jesus and the fact that the Bible is inspired. And to think about, man, these people are listed in the genealogy. Now, for Jews, their genealogy was significant. For you and I, we probably want to skip this. But for a Jew reading this, that was the first thing that they were concerned about. Who was the family? What was the family line? Because that matters if you're going to be the Messiah. You, there, there was like a specified path that your genealogy had to take. One way you could tell if somebody was the right person or not that was very significant. Now think about the Jews. They prided themselves in being children of Abraham. All of the Jews were children of Abraham. They could trace their genealogy back to Abraham. And do you remember Jesus says to them, hey, don't get so excited that you're a child of Abraham. God could raise up a child of Abraham from a rock. But they prided themselves in who they were. Now this is another thing about genealogies. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed that kept all the records of The Jews' genealogies. Today, Jews can't trace themselves back because those records were destroyed. But guess whose records were not destroyed? Jesus. Because we have it right here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so, when you look at the list of the Bible, the names of kings, the times when they were, there are so many details that we can compare, that we can check out the facts. What we found out with Scripture is every time you dig in and you look, not every problem has been resolved, but there are so many problems that when you look into them and when you study them carefully, they are resolved, and the Bible is always vindicated. And so that's one of the things to think about. This genealogy means a lot of things, but that's one of them. Now, son of, son means descendant, right? Right? When it says that Jesus was the son of Abraham, it's not saying that he was his son. It's saying he was his descendant. When it says that Jesus was the son of David, it's not saying he was his son. It's saying he was his descendant. So that's one of the things we need to recognize in every genealogy in the Bible. The word son can mean son, but it can also mean descendant. So when you're looking at genealogies, Sometimes you'll notice differences, and here's the reason why. In the Bible, almost every genealogy can be shown, but it's a a list of ancestor, descendant. Sometimes that's a father and son, and sometimes it skips people. Now, if a genealogy skips people, and God is selecting names, and we know that in this genealogy in Matthew, there are some names that are skipped, And so, you can read two genealogies that can have a list, and those genealogies could pick a different descendant in the list. And so, if you have two genealogies that are not exactly the same, and maybe there's a name in one that's not in another, it's because in this line of descendants, for whatever reason, a different individual was selected as the descendant. And so, we can see that. That's one of the ways to think about these genealogies. Now, as I think about this genealogy, a couple things stand out to me. Number one, it is a reminder that our faith is based on historical fact. And two, this genealogy is an expression of God's grace, God's love, God reaching out into a person's life and saving them. And now when you think about the Bible's history and this list of people, it's interesting that when they were making a genealogy of Jesus, they could have made, Matthew could have made an accurate genealogy of Jesus and left out people with major problems. But when he makes this list, he specifically includes people with major problems. And it's just a testimony. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners and he was descendant from a long line of sinners. In fact, do you know how many people in Jesus' genealogy were sinners? All of them. Let's look at some of this. Matthew has a genealogy of Jesus, and Luke has a genealogy of Jesus, and they're different. So they're, to some degree, Luke includes a lot of names that are not in this genealogy, but there's a place where in the genealogy of Matthew and Luke, it changes. And it's actually at David. So in Matthew, the lineage is traced through Solomon. In Luke, the lineage is traced through Nathan. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. Jesus was physically related to David and Abraham. Matthew traces his legal genealogy He was in the rightful place of a king. Now let's look at God's grace expressed through this genealogy. No whitewashing of history. So God wrote it. It's inspired. It's accurate. But God used the person of Matthew. One of the things I think about, who did Matthew care about? Who was he ministering to? The Jews? But he reminded people Jesus loves everybody. He had friends that were prostitutes and sinners and Gentiles. And who does Matthew include in this genealogy? Prostitutes, adulterers, Gentiles, and some really wicked people. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he lists his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Now, Abraham was a liar. He went and told people that Sarah was a sister because he didn't want to be killed because of her. Yet he was also known as the friend of God. And he was known as a person and an example of faith. He was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. But do you know where he was going to sacrifice Isaac? It was on Mount Moriah, right? Just way out in the wilderness. Do you know where Mount Moriah is? That later became Jerusalem, and the temple was built on the spot where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac, and then you have Jacob. He's a liar, a swindler, but he wrestled with God and asked for a blessing. And then this next, this is the first woman mentioned, and it says, in Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, this is verse 3, by Tamar. Do you know who Tamar was? So Tamar, she's married to one of his sons, who's so wicked God kills him. And then it was a responsibility of a brother to raise up children to his dead brother, and that brother was wicked and so God killed him too. And Judah says, well, I got another son. He says, we're going to have to wait till he gets older and then I'll give him to you. But what the Bible tells us is that Judah was just going to blow off Tamar, and he wasn't going to give his son to her. And so she's like, man, I'm going to be childless. I'm in big trouble here. So she dresses up like a prostitute, goes to the side of a road, and Judah happens to be walking by, and he sees, oh, a prostitute. I'll sleep with her. So Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, not knowing who she is, and she says, okay, give me your staff and give me your signet ring, and then you can pay me later. So this is just always amazes me. So Judah gets some servants and sends them to go pay Tamar. He doesn't know who she is, but to go pay the prostitute. And I just think, when you think about the moral character of these people, you have Bathsheba, who's not even named. Do you know who Je- Bathsheba was? Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She lived in a house next door to King David. And King David used to go up onto his roof and look over and seeing her taking a bath and eventually decides, she looks pretty good, I think I'm going to sleep with her. So she's involved in this whole sexual immorality thing. She doesn't object, probably an instigator in it. She comes to David and says, hey, I'm pregnant, and David has an idea. All right, well, let's get your husband drunk and have him sleep with you so no one will find out. He sends him out into a war and says, hey, put him in the worst part of the fighting and then pull back at the last minute and let him get killed in battle. This is what David does. And you know you want to know something? The Bible doesn't whitewash that. In fact, when God looks at the life of David, he says, David always loved me and honored me in his life, except the sin with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so this isn't whitewashed, and then you have Rehoboam, the kingdom ends up being divided. Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Uzziah, Hezekiah, righteous manna, a person who needed physical healing, who asked God and who was healed. His son Manasseh, he was the most wicked king in Israel. In fact, one of the things it talks about when when he was king, one of the most wicked kings of Judah, one of the things that he did is he filled the city with bloodshed. He just killed everybody. He was a wicked man. He encouraged idol worship. He sacrificed his own children to his false gods. So he killed his own kids. When you read the story in, in Kings, it just talks about what a wicked king he was and how Israel's just, just devastated because of him. But when you read the story in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, it says this about him. God punishes him. He sends him into exile. And then it says this in 2 Chronicles 33, 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. He humbled himself greatly before God his fa- uh, the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty, he heard his plea, he brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So God takes him out of, out of uh, his exile, puts him back, and he spends the rest of his life trying to reverse all the damage that he had done. Man, if these people can be forgiven, anybody could be forgiven, And then you have Jehoiakim and his brothers, and it lists some more people, and we're out of time. So let's go to verse 16. You get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation were 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ 14 generations. Now, if you read this list, that's not saying there were a total of 14. It's saying in this list, there are 14 names. And actually, even with that, one of the names gets listed twice. Uh, Jehoiakim is at the end of the deportation while they were in Babylon. And after the the deportation, his name is listed again. So you count his name in both categories because he was there when they were deported. He was also there after they were deported. And so there's 14 names, and so this helps people remember. Now, just a side note, we t- a lot of times people think that the Bible is so culturally impacted that when the Bible talks about right and wrong and sin and righteousness, oh, it's just an expression of the culture. You want to know what would have never happened in the culture, that they would have put a woman's name in a genealogy? One of the things you find out as you read through Scripture is that morality is not determined by the culture. God always confronts culture. Jesus confronts culture. And the things that are spoken in the New Testament and in the Gospel of Matthew, they apply to us just as much today as they ever did. And so now let's look at verse 18. A couple things we see the significance of this genealogy. First, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, talking about Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus had to be a human and we find out that that's the case. But Jesus was also God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9, for in him, The whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that's what we learn. How did that happen? Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So she was a virgin. Joseph was not his father. And her husband Joseph, being a a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And he will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This... Is the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth to save sinners? Sinners he descended from. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, saying, The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the Old Testament said that this Messiah would be born of a virgin and that he would be God. And it goes on and it says when Joseph awoke from his sleep he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took his wife but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. So Jesus was born of a virgin and it's not saying that Mary was always a virgin. He kept her a virgin until and we know that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. So Mary needed a savior. She was a sinner just like everybody else. Jesus was the perfect person not affected by sin, and he was born to Joseph and Mary. Now, when you think about the virgin birth, that is an essential Christian doctrine. If you don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, you can't be a Christian because that changes who Jesus was. When you think about the way we inherit sin, sin is passed down from Adam. The Bible tells us that in Adam all sinned. He is the only person ever born that was not born as a sinner. Adam and Eve were created without sin, but then they sinned and they have passed on sin ever since. Romans tells us that we inherit sin from Adam and that we're sinners. So we're sinners by nature because we inherit it, and we're also sinners by choice because we actually sin. Those are two things that were not true of Jesus. And the other thing is that if Jesus was not virgin born, then he doesn't fulfill the promise of the Old Testament of who he would be. Let's go to the second point here this morning, that Jesus is accepted and worshipped by some. Who starts with that? Well, let's just start with his parents. God chose spiritually faithful people. When he tells Mary that she's going to give birth, she's like, in Luke, she says, how can this be because I'm a virgin? And when you think about what that meant, and yet her response is just to say, God, let it be done as you've said. Joseph, looking at his wife, thinking that she's been sexually unfaithful, is not going to marry her. But Joseph cared about her. He didn't want to disgrace her. He didn't want her to be harmed. So he was going to divorce her quietly and then this angel comes and says joseph don't be afraid to marry to mary mary this child and her is from the holy spirit and so to start with who accepted jesus his parents faithful righteous people that god put him in their family and joseph when he's given this instruction he just obeys a faithful righteous person consider the wise men verse chapter 2 verse 1 Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, think about what Matthew is doing here. He's talking about Gentiles who know Jesus is gonna be born, these wise men who come from Babylon. How did they know that Jesus was gonna be born? And you just think about the influence that Daniel had. Do you remember Daniel was supposed to interpret a dream? The king says, I want to know what my dream was and what it means. And the wise men say, well, no, you've got to tell us what your dream is. And he says, you guys are a bunch of liars. If you can't tell me my dream, I'm killing all of you. And so they're going to kill all the wise men. And Daniel's like, hey, what's the king so upset about? And they tell him, and he says, okay, well, dr- the interpretation of dreams comes from God. I'll go tell him what his dream was and what it means. And so Daniel saves the life of these wise men. He has this incredibly faithful ministry in Babylon and spiritually lays a foundation that goes on for generations of spiritually faithful people, Gentiles, looking for the Messiah. And when Jesus is being born, they show up. Now, by the way, Jesus was not still in the manger A couple of years have gone by since this has happened, and they've come to see Jesus. We don't know how many there are. They give three gifts, but the Bible doesn't tell us how many there were. And we know that Jesus was probably a year old or older because it says he was in a house. And when Herod decides to kill the babies, he kills every baby two years and younger. So he's like, okay, how can I make sure I kill Jesus? So those are just a few things. Now, Herod was a descendant of Esau. And one of the things that's amazing, look at verse 3. And this tells us something about the way people and why people reject Jesus. Look at this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, Herod was a wicked man. He killed everybody. He killed his brother-in-law, and then he killed his wife, and then he killed a couple of his kids. People said, you're better off being a pig than the son of of Herod because you would be more likely to live because he didn't eat pork. Jews didn't eat pork. And, so, and the word son and, and pig is actually in Greek is one letter different. So this was like a saying, you're, you're more likely to live if you're a pig than if you're a son. This guy just killed everybody, was brutal. And he assembles the chief priests and scribes and the people and he says to them, where is the Christ to be born? And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, so for it is written by the prophet, And, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You want to know what amazes me about that? Herod finds out there's a king, and he says, I'm killing this king. Now, that's not a surprise, but here's what is a surprise. He wants to find this king, so he says to the Jews, where's the king going to be born? Who foretold where this king would be born? Like, who wrote that? God writes that in the Old Testament. He says, this is going to be the king. So is, is Herod just going, oh, randomly, who could be king? No, he's saying God promised that there would be a king. Where is this king going to be born? Where did God say he was going to be born? Okay, I'm going to go kill that king. You know, rebellion against God is not just unbelief. Herod believes. He didn't just go, okay, let me just go kill a bunch of people. He says to them, okay, this king is coming. God has sent this king. I'm going to go kill God's king. It is hard-hearted rebellion and defiance and rejection of God. That's not a lack of belief. That, if he didn't believe, he wouldn't have cared where it said he was going to be born but he actually rejects the son that God says he's gonna send. And who's not looking for Jesus? The religious leaders are not. And so look at verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way, so they go and they find him, and it says in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, fell down and worshiped him, Opening their treasure, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and mirror. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by their own way. So Jesus is worshipped by some. And that's, that's one of the options people have to Jesus. And finally, Jesus is hated and rejected by others. And we just know to start with that Herod rejected Jesus and wanted to kill him. In fact, he's willing to just wipe out every single baby. Now, here's one of the things that you'll see. Who else tried to kill all the babies? Like when you think back in, in biblical history, who else was kind of trying to kill babies? Pharaoh, right? Want to kill all the babies, Moses ends up being spared through that. When you look at this story, there are so many connections to, to Moses and Egypt and Jesus. And it actually even talks about, it's, it's referred to in this prophecy, verse 14, it says, And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and remained there until Herod's death. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. In the rest of the chapter, Herod rejects Jesus, the religious leaders, they're not looking for them, and in the whole Gospel of Matthew, they reject Jesus. And Jesus is the person foretold and protected by God, the one who God said would come. And then you have the angels that God sends to speak to Joseph and to warn Joseph and to guide him into Egypt and to tell him when it's time to come back. And you just see the role of the angels in the life of Jesus. Now, to bring things to a close this morning, there are certain things, did you know, everybody either accepts Jesus or rejects him. If you've put your faith in him, you've made a good choice. You've put your faith in the right Messiah, but everybody accepts or rejects Jesus. And like Herod, it's not a matter of unbelief. It is a matter of hard-hearted rebellion. Did you know that there are certain things you don't have to prove to any person? One example is that God is real. Lots of people say, I'm an atheist, but Romans 1 verse 18 says that God puts that knowledge in everybody's heart. In Romans chapter 2, it talks about how the Gentiles instinctively do the works of the law. They show that God has written his law on their hearts. And when Jesus is going to leave in John chapter 14, he says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit is going to communicate to every single person on earth. Now you think about this in your evangelism ministry. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to prove these things to people. You should. But let me tell you deep down what you don't have to prove to anybody. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lays the foundation for us sharing the gospel with every person we meet. Look at John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then look what it says next in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Did you know that every person on earth knows they're a sinner? Every person on earth knows that Jesus is righteous, and everybody knows that there is a coming judgment. Those are things you don't have to prove to anybody. When you tell people those things, Something in their heart tells them that it's true. And sometimes people do all kinds of studying and rationalization to try to convince themselves that those things aren't true. There are people who study science and who get into evolution not because they believe it's true, but they're trying to create this mental excuse to deny what their heart is telling them is real. So think about that. When you share the gospel with people... Before you've told anybody anything, they know these things are true. Look what it says in verse 9. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Have you ever wondered why all people say Jesus is a good teacher? They don't know him. They haven't met him. A lot of people haven't even read the Bible. But every religion exalts Jesus as a righteous person, a good person. Why? People have a tendency to do that generally because that's a truth that God has put in people's hearts. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, these things are supernaturally known. And so it's not that we shouldn't learn how to convince people. It's not that we shouldn't learn arguments about those things. That is valuable, but here's why it's valuable. Not because it convinces people, but when they've tried to put all these roadblocks in their own mind and when they've tried to convince themselves that Jesus isn't real, that they're not spiritually in trouble, that they don't need him, when they try to come up with their own religion and they come up with all these excuses, it can be helpful if you can one by one take away this excuse, take away this excuse, take away that excuse and leave them to acknowledge it's not that I can't believe, it's not that it's unbelievable, it's that I refuse to believe and to leave a person in a condition where they know they are suppressing the truth. But here's the advantage. What if you haven't studied? What if you don't know all the answers? What if you're talking to somebody who's smarter than you are, you just tell them what the Bible says is true. You're a sinner. Jesus is righteous. He came to save you. You don't have to win the argument. You just say it. And you pray that the Lord will work in their life and in their heart. Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Let's close. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness, for your love that you've done the work of evangelism, Lord, you did it in our heart. As we read these things, we know they're true. And Lord, when we share the gospel with people, they know they're true. Lord, we know that this is a historical truth, not a religious fantasy. Lord, we know that everybody needs to make a decision, and we ask that you would help us to live faithfully before you, to embrace these things, that we would share the gospel well. We ask these things in your name. Amen.